Welcome to the Absite Smackdown Podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, interesting Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome back. It's me, your host, Jess, of Absite Smackdown Podcast. And here with me, as always, is Dr. David Kashmir. And again, back, we have Dr. Colton Lee. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hi, Jessica. Hi, Colton, Jessica, nice to see you both. So Jessica, today, I know that uh, not only do we have Colton back on the program, but you wanted us to make sure we focused on a couple things. And as you said last time, uh, Colton helped the team with several chapters, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Carlos and I were just uh, talking the other day too. He says, hello. And basically the whole team is really ready to bring this volume to a close. So we're all getting really excited for it. And today, well, today I know that you wanted us to make sure uh, we cover small bowel. So lucky for us, Dr. Colton Lee uh, from uh, Las Vegas and the Consortium GME program in Las Vegas came back today. Uh, and when I say came back, he's even in a different location. Dr. Colton, where are you today in the world? I am in the beautiful, sunny McAllen, Texas. Well, you said it's sunny. How sunny is it there today? Because when I was there recently, 107 we hit. It's actually kind of cloudy today. Hopefully the sun will come out later this week. I was hoping to go uh, to the beach on my day off. So Mm -hmm. I have my fingers crossed. Well, thanks for being with us again today. And Jessica, where do we need to go today? Uh, Well, first, what beach is close to McAllen? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so McAllen's actually an hour and a half, uh, roughly from uh, South Padre Island. Oh, okay. Well, that makes that makes sense now. I think that one of our one of our listeners had sent a video from South Padre, and so I didn't realize how close that was to McAllen. That's super awesome. So actually, so Dr. K, how long ago were you there that it was that hot? Well, Jessica, it was just about a week ago, and okay. uh, Dr. Lee and I were like ships passing in the night because okay. I was just leaving McAllen when he got there uh, to be with the team on the clinical side. Okay. And uh, we just we missed each other just uh, by a little bit, but I'm sure we'll all get together uh, one day soon. It sure was good to see Dr. Carlos and uh, everybody else there. Right. So, Colton, was that your first time meeting Dr. Carlos when you just got here two weeks ago? So actually, I met him back in December. I rotated through already one time, and uh, so I got the full Dr. Palacio experience. <laughs> he makes me laugh. He's great. Okay, so one of the reasons we want to have you back on is you're kind of like our overachiever that we have on the team right now because you're doing three chapters, which is a lot, especially with the resident schedule. And last time we had you on, you talked about why you chose the thought thyroid because you felt like maybe you weren't as strong in that area. So why did you choose this chapter for the small bowel? So small bowel is pretty interesting to me because it's the bread and butter of uh, general surgery. I always joke that I don't like to operate in the pelvis. and I don't like to operate in the chest. I like to keep it like from sternum to um, umbilicus. But I just, I really enjoy the pathology of small bowel. There's a lot there. Um, And there are a lot of clinical correlations with other disease processes that you see manifest in the small bowel, whether it's, um, you know, Crohn's and iliopsychitis and things like that, or if you have um, desmoid tumors or things like that that show up in the small bowel. So I think it's pretty interesting. It's a lot to cover for it being small, right? (laughs) 
All right, Dr. David, um, you know, before, now that we have all the residents helping with the chapters, what was your favorite part of when you were writing the small bowel chapters, when you were thinking of all the questions that you felt pertained best to the test when you were writing this? What, what helped you make the blueprint for that? Well, it really helped me and every chapter helped me organize in my head um, really some of the basic things that we don't think about all the time. So for this one, just some of the certain things we do and little reminders about procedures we do all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Dr. Lee was nice enough to say when he came on that we would be doing another case with him today, which is just really awesome. And mm -hmm. you know, thanks again for that. So I don't wanna give away the case, but that case is one example of kind of how just doing the chapters and, and organizing the notes and uh, information in a certain way helped me remember what I need to do when I'm in the OR. Uh, sometimes I, I kind of would have had to think more, okay, wait, this is here. This, and even once you take in boards, et cetera, a lot of the absite specific stuff uh, mm -hmm. does come up, but it may be in a different context. So right. bottom line is setting up these chapters, Jessica, really helped me to keep straight and refresh in my head all these sort of little things that come up all the right. time, and especially come up on the absite and boards. Right. I remember we, we did do that podcast where you took the book on rounds with you one day and we're just highlighting all of the absite facts from the book that came up as you were doing rounds. And that was one of my favorite podcasts we did because that was just so fascinating because we talk about how, you know, oh, this is for the test, this is studying, but how, how important it is that you use it even more than you think and you don't realize until you're looking at the material, how often this is coming up every day as you're in the hospital. Yeah, you know, Jessica, one of the things that we talked about was we do these books and we say, oh, that's just review book land or oh, that doesn't come up that much. Mm -hmm. But you're right. All I did was take a copy on rounds, one of the original editions. So it was even smaller for my pocket. Mm -hmm. And then anytime someone mentioned something and I didn't count myself, I just because right. I was doing this. Anytime right. someone mentioned something, I just put a little tick mark next to it. And we mm -hmm. we got a sense of how often on rounds per patient some fact in this book comes up. The bottom line is it's all the time, which was really fascinating. It is not just uh, absite level knowledge. It really comes up all the time, even when you don't force it and you're just trying to take good care of patients. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best for your absite review. So, Dr. Lee, as you've been reviewing the chapters and helping contribute, have you noticed more of with you being so deep into the material and trying to help with it when you're in the hospital? Does it pop in your head like, oh, yeah, I was just doing this? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, there are a lot of things that, you know, the pathology we see in the book that every day whenever we're in a case or something or you know, even questions that come up over and over again with attendings whenever they're pimping us in the operating room or medical students. And I'll just kind of chuckle to myself. And I think, you know, I've gotten that question before. I've seen that here and there. And I may not know off the top of my head where, what the answer is every time, but I know where to find it now. Right. Especially being a part of the book. That repetition, repetition, it just gets you. Okay, Dr. David, are you ready to lead him in the scenario today or? Jessica, I'm ready. <laughs> Let's get okay. to it. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I like to make it a little bit more dramatic sometimes. <laughs> um, Dr. Lee, thanks again for helping cover the United States Best Hospital. It's really great to have you join up as an attending. Unfortunately, of course, it's a rural hospital. You're the only guy on call. 
you know how this setup goes. But really, it's great to have you. Really mm-hmm. great that you joined staff. And Are we at first... Mississippi? That's where I grew up. Okay. <laughs> okay, rural That's... Mississippi. Okay. Well, at United States Greatest Hospital, of course, it's your first night on call. You really don't know where the ORs are yet, but you think you have a pretty good idea. And you get called by one of your ED colleagues because they have a patient who really just kind of felt a little off and had some vomit and came to see them uh, in the emergency room. Really a bunch of nonspecific abdominal complaints, and they're just not sure what's going on. The patient does have a white count, white, elevated white blood cell count, I should say, to keep it board style. They have an elevated white blood cell count. Their history is extensive. They've had uh, two stents in the past for MI. They have hypertension, hyperlipidemia, left hip replacement. I'm sure you've seen this person about a thousand times in your practice, right? I mean, it's everybody. Oh, and they're obese. Um, not just a little bit, but but re- very obese. And they'd ask you to come by and please take a look at them because the patient is just, again, these nonspecific abdominal complaints. Uh, and they're just not sure what's going on, but they're concerned because of all the chronic medical conditions and an elevated white blood cell count. So how do you proceed? The Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. So it's a pretty uh, nondescript case. Um, I'm going to go and speak with the patient first, uh, kind of get more of a history and physical on my own. It sounds like you said nonspecific abdominal complaints. Um, I'm assuming that includes pain and vomiting uh, somewhere and try and localize where they're hurting. Yeah, they do have a history of vomiting. They vomited twice uh, the morning uh, in the morning of the day they presented to the ER. And they do just kind of say they have some lower abdominal discomfort, not frank pain, they say, uh, but that it sort of hurts in their lower abdomen diffusely. Okay. Uh, and they have an elevated white blood cell count. Have they had any imaging yet? The only imaging they've had is a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray. And that chest, uh, x-ray, chest x-ray does not demonstrate not pneumonia or any other cause uh, for uh, pain in the uh, abdomen. And the patient, is their kidney function okay? Uh, they did get a BMP, and the patient's creatinine is 1.2. Okay. Um this is a patient I think that I would want a CT scan on of their abdomen and pelvis just to kind of delineate what's going on. Um, I would get it with IV contrast preferably. Colton or Dr. Lee, normally I would not ask you if we're doing an oral boards or an absite review, but just to help the people listening, what do you think this person could have? And of course it's many things, but sort of what is in your mind at this point? just to give maybe the first years, if there are any watching and other junior staff, maybe medical students, just to give them a sense of what you're thinking at this point for this patient, what it could be. So in a, uh, correct me, age you said was? The patient is 65 years old. Okay. So in a 65 year old with lower abdominal pain and nausea, vomiting uh, or discomfort, uh, top of my list is going to be something like diverticulitis, appendicitis, uh, gastroenteritis, if they have associated fevers and chills, uh, any type of food poisoning and things like that, or even okay. a small bowel obstruction. Okay. So you proceed with your CAT scan and the patient does get IV contrast. Dr. Lee, before they get their scan completed, they ask you, would you also like oral contrast for this patient or just IV? So 
that will depend on whether or not they are completely obstructed. I kind of jumped the gun on the CT scan itself. Um, there are a couple more questions I want to ask the patient, uh, whether or not they've had bowel movements, if they've been vomiting for several days, or if this is new onset, if they're passing flatus, um, things like that. The patient does report passing flatus, uh, and they do say that they have had regular bowel movements up to and including today. And although they're obese, and of course you have therefore a limited abdominal exam, you do get the sense that they are not uh, distended. Uh, they are not uh, very distended for them. So uh, how do you proceed with that CAT scan? So I would give them PO and IV contrast. Okay. So they have their CT scan completed with both PO and IV contrast. And the uh, read from the radiologist when it comes back is no free air, uh, presence of diverticuli on the left side, a left kidney cyst, which is about one centimeter and is homogeneous, no septations. And they do have appendicitis per the radiologist's reading. Uh, they have a stranding at the appendix. Uh, the appendix appears to be dilated uh, and there's some incidental mesenteric nodes around it. How do you proceed? Uh, does the patient have an appendicolith? There is no appendicolith visible on the CT scan. Okay, so in a patient um, with appendicitis, there are a couple of routes you can go. Um, one of them is, uh, is you know, non-operative management with antibiotics. Uh, the other route you could go is uh, obviously an appendectomy. Now there is a new trial that was recently published and presented at, I think the journal or at ACS last year about uh, non-operative management of appendicitis. My personal preference in this patient would be to proceed with, uh, with an appendectomy, um, assuming that they are uh, clinically, you know, state safe for surgery. If their, you know, glucoses are fine, if they can handle the, a laparoscopic procedure and anesthesia is not too high of a risk. Dr. Lee, I think first off, uh, I'm just going to pause the scenario with you. And for the listeners at home, I think it's a great choice to, to mention, at least there is both an operative and non-operative management now that's different than when I was a resident. Uh, so I think you, you do well to mention both and state clearly your preference in this patient is operative. Um, before we go on and to just step outside the answers for a second and you answering, you know, board style, mm -hmm. in your mind, what are the risks of non-operative management of 65-year-olds and risks of operative management? What's the downside of each pathway? Because on boards or anything, no matter which pathway you choose, the technique is to make you be able to demonstrate you're safe, even with good judgment. And if you, some complications you will get, no matter which path you walk down. And so they often make you walk down those paths just to demonstrate you know how to handle what you're doing. So outside of what we would typically do, because you, you've answered what you do, I'm curious if you go the non-operative route, what downsides do you see to non-operative management of of patients like this? Because we do see them all the time, older patient appendicitis by CT. Yes, sir. So in a patient with appendicitis that is treated non-operatively, there's a relatively high risk of interval appendectomy within 90 days. Um, you obviously do not definitively treat their appendicitis, uh, particularly in patients that have appendicolids, who I think were actually excluded from the CODA trial, which I was mentioning earlier. Um, but if you have a mechanical obstruction of the appendix and you treat the append appendicitis with antibiotics, the obstruction is not necessarily going to get better all the time. Um, and so later on, you will have to likely do surgery if the patient represents or if they prefer it. 
Um, sorry. No, it's that's great. And Dr. Lee, I'll also ask you, when we look at appendicitis by cause, you know, as you know, it varies among age groups. How does the cause of appendicitis in younger patients, the typical 20-year-old we teach medical students about, et cetera, how does the cause, the, the list of causes in younger people differ from the list of causes in 65-year-olds? And does that have anything to do with the risk of non-operative management in these older patients? Yes, sir. That's actually a really great point. In a patient who's 65 years old, I'm going to have a slightly different list of causes for appendicitis. Um, number one would be some kind of malignant process or some type of obstruction outside of, you know, what you have in a, you know, seven-year-old that comes to the hospital with appendicitis. It's much less likely that they have some type of malignancy. Mm. Well, I would say that's great. And I know you say number one because it's important, but I, I know we've talked about this. Wow. I don't remember how long ago, but appendicitis of all comers, lymphatic hyperplasia is still the classic that's number one on the list across age groups. But just as you say, as we get older and as we get to 60 plus years old, tumor rises up on the list a lot to almost number two, but it goes way up. So still not number one, but just like you said, your ears perk up about it. Anyway, with that, okay, back to the case. We're going to operate on this guy. Uh, Dr. Lee, um, you are able to obtain uh, consent from the patient after you've decided what and how you're going to perform this appendectomy. What's your preference for how to perform an appendectomy in a patient like this? So I would prefer a laparoscopic procedure, um, usually with three ports. Uh, we put a port uh, probably super umbilically. Some people do it below the umbilicus and then three more, one in the left lower quadrant and one just above the pubis um, after the patient has a fully placed, of course. Sure. So the patient is positioned per your routine with an OG tube and a Foley. Uh, access and port placement is no issue and all per your safe routine. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm doing that to fast forward you through the case to the point where uh, via the laparoscope, you notice that the patient does seem to have an inflamed appendix at the base. Does this change your mind at all for how you proceed or does this make you proceed in any certain way? And what is that way if it does? So if the base of the appendix is involved, then that raises my suspicion for some other process going on. Um, and it also kind of changes the way that I want to manage the, uh, the appendix itself because you have to have healthy tissue to staple across just for all comers that you have decided for. Um, so this is a patient that might have something else going on. When you say might have something else going on and that your clinical suspicion is raised, how do you proceed? What is your next action based on that, uh, that concern? Well, the next step after uh, having issues with and uh, with the base being involved, you're going to start stepping up your surgical management to something like a ileostectomy or even a right endectomy. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown, the only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. When you inspect the area further, Dr. Lee, you think the patient does have appendicitis clearly, but as you dissect the area to free it up and decide what to do, you do think the patient has a mass there in the base of the appendix. How do you proceed? So this is definitely something, regardless of what the mass is, uh, whether it's a carcinoid or adeno or any other type of malignancy, 
Um, it involves the base. And so this is a patient that's going to wind up with a right hemicolectomy. Um, and I would actually perform a cancer operation in this patient, um, including lymph nodes, uh, just to, to make sure that we have the most complete surgery that we can at this point. Um, okay. Obviously, other indications for a, um, a right hemicolectomy include the size of the mass. Uh, but if it includes the base, then, then we're going to take colon. You perform an uncomplicated right hemicolectomy with a stapled anastomosis that you're able to do. Uh, and you uh, do inspect the mesentery as you take the mesentery. And there do seem to be multiple and large nodes uh, consistent with what the CAT scan had said uh, were maybe just reactive. But these do seem to be uh, very positive, firm nodes. Uh, and you're able to take many of those out along with the right colonic mesentery. Uh, the area appears to be dry and you've lavaged the area and everything seems to be okay. Anything else you do before the procedure ends, uh, before you- Yeah, so uh, metastatic lesions from the colon uh, or from the appendix can, can actually go to the liver. So I wanna inspect the liver while I'm in the operating room and have eyes on it to look for any obvious lesions. There are no obvious lesions in the liver, and are there any other places you choose to inspect, or is it liver only? Um, I mean, I'm going to look around the bowel and, and kind of inspect the peritoneum, make sure there's no peritoneal meds and things like yeah. that. Uh, you do run the small bowel, and there are no other lesions that you can see uh, in the mesentery of the small bowel. With that, uh, you complete the case in your standard fashion, uh, and the uh, patient uh, has no issues uh, postoperatively. Dr. Lee, do you have any specific recommendations for older patients like these who have a laparoscopic uh, right hemicolectomy? Um, in reference to... What are your typical post-operative instructions for a patient uh, at his age who's had a perfect. right laparoscopic right hemicolectomy? So in our facility, we actually harp on ERAS protocol. Um, and so we like to feed our patients really early. We like to get them up, get their Foley's out, limit their fluid intake postoperatively. Um, and we monitor their, you know, their return of bowel function by their tolerance of PO liquids. Um, I'm also gonna manage the patient with multimodal pain control uh, in order to maximize their benefit. Well, Dr. Lee, I think you did great with that scenario. That is a really challenging one. And it's interesting how often when we're in the OR, we, with all the appendectomies we do, we get these and we go, hmm, okay, I think that's at the base. I think you, the keys that you highlighted really nicely are, remember, in older patients, we call this a typical appendicitis, but in fact, it's typically how appendicitis presents. They don't typically have the right lower quadrant pain. They can just sort of have this indolent course. It's very nonspecific. That is typical for them. And yet we call it a typical appendicitis, but not in their age group. That's really pretty typical for them. They often don't even have an elevated white blood cell count. I think you did well to hit the fact that cancer is much higher on the uh, list of things in the diagnosis. And I'll share with you often in the OR, it is not appreciated that it is a mass that's causing this. And you get it back on pathology. Uh, maybe you've just done a right hemicolectomy, but you haven't taken the nodes and you haven't really inspected well. So I think you did really well uh, to pick up on that. Uh, especially because with carcinoid, there is uh, frequently enough uh, another carcinoid elsewhere in the small bowel uh, or somewhere similar. Uh, most patients, of course, with carcinoid don't have carcinoid symptoms, 
even if they do have Mets to the liver, which is the only way you can get carcinoid syndrome, really, they don't have carcinoid syndrome, even with Mets to the liver. So it's really fascinating. Uh, they're really interesting cases and God knows you never want to be an interesting case. Uh, but I think you handled that uh, very well for the morbidly obese uh, patient who is elderly, uh, who has these findings. It, they can be very nonspecific. And I think, I think you hit it really well. Um, what would you like to share about cases like these that maybe you've seen in your practice? Have you seen any appendiceal tumors or lesions or the weird things yet? So I have not had a carcinoid uh, personally, but I have had an appendix that came back positive for adenocarcinoma on pathology and the patient then did receive a, uh, a uh, right nucleotide. I have a question for you though. Uh, sure. Would you routinely get tumor markers on these patients preoperatively if you have a patient that is, has appendicitis and is you know, 65, 70 years old? No, I don't. Um, I think some people who have foresight may do it. Uh, but I feel like the therapy is really going to be determined, and I won't know for sure whether they have it until I'm, I'm in there. So routinely, a couple things. First, patients who have this atypical appendicitis at 65 present late. And I'll tell you what often happens, Colton, they're often perforated for whatever cause when they come in. They get a perk drain, they get better. We tell them once they leave to have a colonoscopy, and then we often don't even perform the interval appendectomy. And so then there's some evidence that's come out. Well, how often are you missing a tumor that's going to impact their longevity? And the answer is not often, not often at all. It's pretty rare, uh, according to just a few studies that are out. There aren't many on it. So I always wonder when I see older people who come in late, and by the way, they typically present late with appendicitis because they don't have any symptoms and they go on to perforate. So the 65-year-old age group shows up late. They more commonly show up perforated. They get a perk drain. And their appendix often never even comes out because they're high risk or something like that. So your question is a good one. In a patient like this, do you get tumor markers ahead of time? I'm going to tell you, I am concerned in patients like these, how often are we not catching the tumor that they had that was very subtle uh, because they came in perforated and got a perk drain? And does it mean anything if we don't take out that appendix eventually. And there's some, that's, I don't think very well settled yet. Uh, so no, the short answer is I don't routinely check tumor markers. I will routinely talk about, hey, this could be a carcinoid. We'll be on the lookout for it when we're in the OR. If it shows us any sign of carcinoid, um, then we'll do something about it. Uh, and like you said, you know, sometimes these don't involve the base at all. They're just mid appendix. We take out the appendix with a clean base um, I do look at the nodes in older people if I can and just look around to be sure I've done it. And of course, the CAT scan didn't show any METs or anything either. And then uh, then you send it to PATH and the pathologist comes back five days later and says, oh yeah, it was carcinoid. You go, huh. That's usually in the real world, in my experience, how these carcinoid cases end. You get the pathology back and it's, huh. But you know, to, to go through the thought process involving the base, what do we do next? Um, we kind of expand on it for these oral boards. But again, the short answer, no, usually don't get tumor markers. Just figure we'll, we'll know when we're in there uh, if they're going to change anything. And they typically won't affect what I do at the time. So I, I don't send them. Yes, sir. Yeah. So with that, Jessica, what a case. Now, you know, for elderly patients or older patients, I can't say elderly anymore because I'm slowly <laughs> getting to 60. More and more and more. It's coming faster and faster. So I don't, but for older patients, now you know what to do. 
if they have uh, this uh, indolent appendicitis and it turns out to be carcinoid. Hey guys, hope you're enjoying this episode. Remember, there's much more at theabsitesmackdown.com, including more tools, tips, and study techniques. Check out absitesmackdown.com and click on latest news for more great info. Hashtag absitesmackdown. Okay, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not you guys, so I'm going to make sure that I have the understanding here. So surgical is usually what you guys do. You do the antibiotic treatment, non-surgical, if they don't tolerate surgery, or is that something that's more common in younger people treating it with the antibiotics and surgery? Sometimes it's patient. If the patient doesn't want surgery, um, then they should be able to choose for themselves and get an antibiotic treatment, uh, assuming that they know the risk that they will have to have surgery in the future. Okay. So it's, it's actually changed a lot, Jessica. Um, originally, so younger people in the military were on submarines and things like that, and they couldn't mm-hmm. surface and they get appendicitis and they couldn't have their appendix out easily on a submarine. So people gave them antibiotics, at least this is what I'm told. And it worked. But then there are all these questions. Are they going to get appendicitis again? Is it going to be worse? So for younger patients in the U.S. anyway, yeah. um, we often still remove the appendix. But that may change because there's more and more literature coming out about, do you really need to? For older people, uh, like Colton said, they have significant comorbidities. So they have any real risk or are prohibitive operatively. They often get antibiotics. If they have a perforation, they just get a drain put into the abscess collection. Um, But there are, it has changed. There are now many more choices with appendicitis than there were. I would say in general, the classic teaching is broad strokes, medical student level. Hey, appendicitis. Okay. We're going to remove your appendix, but yet even in medical school, now they're starting to teach, Hey, not everyone needs their appendix out. And there's some patients who shouldn't. So in your mind with what you said, still think of surgery as first line in general, first thing we do, Mm -hmm. but there are plenty of reasons now, like Dr. Lee said, why a surgical intervention may not be the right answer for appendicitis. Does that make sense? I understand now, especially if the patient can't tolerate surgery. So it's all about what's right for the patient. Every time I evaluate a patient, come up with a plan, I think to myself, like, what is the right thing for this patient? Mm -hmm. Dr. K mentioned broad strokes. and it's absolutely correct. You know, a lot of the times on AppSite, we're going to have a question that 100% of the time, the answer is X. Uh, But Patients aren't like that all the time. And you have to think about what is best for the person in front of me. And it's not always surgery. It's not always avoiding surgery. Right. Yeah. Patient care. (laughs) Yeah. I'll just share this as we close out, Jessica and uh, Colton. One of the guys who trained me had a really great saying, which is that conservative is not synonymous with non-operative. A lot of times nowadays people say, oh, conservative management and we didn't operate. Well, Well, guess what? Sometimes the conservative thing to do for certain conditions or when you're not sure of something is to operate. And I always find that useful to remember in situations like these, when we're talking more and more about non-operative management of things and reasons not to operate. That's true. However, for certain diseases and certain things, if you're not sure, operate. Uh, The conservative thing is to operate often. So I thought that's a useful thing to share. I really appreciated that in my training. Yes, sir. I think that was reflected when he was talking about doing the surgery and he would take the notes too. 
even before ascending to path, like that is the conservative choice, right? It's like better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, it's a great way to say it. That's a great way to say it. Okay. All right, guys. Well, it was so nice having you back on Dr. Lee. And as always, Dr. Gay, you know, I enjoy your company. So thanks for tuning in, guys. And remember, hashtag Abside Smackdown. Thanks for listening to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit us at absitesmackdown.com for more great Absite facts.